0: I love that song, it's so fitting to our series that we're in right now. We have, uh, for the last several weeks, we have been in our series on the book of Exodus, and as we have seen week after week after week, you see that our God is greater. Greater than all of the other powers, that He is greater than, than all of the other gods. And as we worked through the ten plagues a couple of weeks ago, we saw that it was our God, our great God, who was taking aim at those lesser gods, and that He was laying them bare uh, as as He exploited them, as He revealed His power and revealed His glory among the the Israelites. And so I've asked Kendall to, to continue to use that song because it sort of serves as a as a theme and as a setup for everything that we have been talking about for the last several weeks, and today we're in part five. Excuse me, we're in part six of this series. We've got one more that we'll wrap up in two weeks. Next week we're going to do kind of a one-off because it's fall festival and it's not fair to bring visitors in on a sermon series that's ending. So uh, we'll uh, we'll do uh, we'll do kind of a special one for them that uh, that you didn't have to be here. You know, it's kind of like. You read a book series, and you start in book four, and they're, you know, just, they're just totally lost. We won't do that to them. We'll have just a, a one-off series, and then we'll conclude our, uh, our series in Exodus in two weeks. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 20. That's, uh, that's where we will be, Exodus chapter 20. When I was a kid... There was a lot of stuff going on in the world. There was some craziness that was going on in the world. I mean, the Berlin Wall was still up. The Cold War was still raging. There was a debate in our country that was threatening to tear us apart. And it was Old Coke or New Coke. You remember that? You remember Max Headroom getting on TV? Remember and just trying to tell us that that new Coke was better. What were they thinking? I mean, it was a crazy time to to be alive. We were finding out that Luke and Leah were brother and sister, and that and that 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 Darth Vader, their their crazy asthmatic lunatic was their father and he wanted to rule the galaxy and what was that kiss about the world was crazy yeah yeah yet out of all of that chaos out of all of that that calamity came two voices of reason. Two men who boldly came came proclaiming a message that was so important that according to some, their contributions to society would one day change the world. And I am speaking of none other than the great philosophers, Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan. Bill and Ted, came bringing us this, this message. And that message very simply was, be excellent to each other. And party on, dudes. Doesn't that make you feel good? Let's just say that together, okay? Let's, let's do be excellent to each other, and then we'll do party on, dudes. I want to hear some gusto, okay? So let's do the first part. Be excellent to each other. And party on, dudes. Doesn't that just make you feel good? I mean, it makes you feel good to proclaim that that message. Well, you're probably wondering what on earth that has to do with this sermon. Nothing. I just kind of liked it and thought I'd throw it out there. I'd just, you know, loosen us up just a little bit. Actually, it is going to tie in in, in just a few minutes. You know, last week we talked about the most well-known story in the book of Exodus, and that was the, the parting of the Red Sea, and as we said last week, and as I've said over the last several weeks, that that's the story that just about everybody knows about. Well, today we come to the passage of Scripture that just about everybody knows about from the book of Exodus. They may, may not know where exactly it is, they may not know it's located in Exodus chapter 20, but just about everybody knows about the ten commandments because we've all heard about them we've seen them they're posted in in different places we've had debates that have raged throughout our country about whether you can hang them in federal buildings and whether you you cannot but that's where we are today we're talking about the ten commandments and it's in the ten commandments that god gives us guidelines for how we how we treat one another god desires a community that loves and reflects the relationships with the triune God. The Ten Commandments shape the community of love. And what you you may have noticed, or maybe you haven't, is as you work through those commandments, the first four, they sort of deal with our relationship or how we treat God. And then you keep reading and you realize that commandments 5 through 10, they sort of deal with our relationship or how we treat others, okay? And it's about that, that, that the vertical and the horizontal relationships. And you've heard me talk about that a hundred times. In fact, I mentioned it here just a couple of weeks ago, okay, that the relationship we have with God, thats the, that's the vertical relationship, okay? And the relationship that we have with others, with our friends, with our neighbors, our families, our loved ones, those that we don't get along with, our enemies, that's the vertical relationship, okay? And how many times have we said that, you know, A lot of people, they just have this relationship, okay? They don't have a lot of this going on, okay? Or this relationship is really bad, but in their minds, this relationship is really good, okay? But as we've said so many times, if this relationship, if the horizontal relationship is not good, then the vertical relationship is not good either, okay? The Ten Commandments teach us about those. It teaches us about both the horizontal and the vertical relationships that we have. And that is the relationship with God, and that's the relationship with others. And so, I think our friends, Bill and Ted, I think they capture what the Ten Commandments are ultimately trying to get us to do, and that is very simply this, be excellent to each other. Be, isn't that good advice? I mean, Bill and Ted, they were on to something. Okay? Now then, there was some stuff that's a little questionable. But the message that they preached, be excellent to each other. That's about loving people. That's about putting others uh, ahead of ourselves. And so that's what we're talking about this morning. Well, as we know and as we've seen over the, uh, over the last several weeks, God has miraculously, God has gloriously defeated Pharaoh and his army forever, crushing the, the stronghold that, that he has had on the Israelites. And now God is going to take this people, these Israelites, and he's going to, to claim them as his own. And as you get into chapter 20, you have these first these couple of verses that sort of serve as a prologue to what is to follow, and what is to follow is the Decalogue, the Decalogue. The Ten Commandments, or or more specifically, the Ten Words. But read together, read with me uh, verses 1 and 2. They'll be on the screen. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The prologue provides the reason why the Lord can now impose these, these Ten laws. He is not only the one who has redeemed his people from slavery, but now having redeemed them, he also desires to begin to form his holy character in them. Remember last week, as we said, that, that some of the things that we don't necessarily understand is that they didn't see this as, as freedom in the sense that we see freedom. Okay? They didn't view freedom in the way that the Western view of freedom holds okay it's not like they were released from from captivity and then they were just scot-free with no responsibility no they went from one master who was pharaoh who was this oppressive horrible dictator to a new master and it is the loving and the benevolent god okay so they went from one master to another master they from one way of life which was harsh to a new way of life which was great and wonderful and, and and life giving God is is the one who has released Israel from Egyptian-imposed boundaries. He will now speak to Israel about Yahweh-imposed boundaries. There is a world of difference between boundaries that enslave and boundaries that that energize. There is a world of difference between boundaries that destroy life and, and, and boundaries that direct life. And this is what God is doing as he pulls his people out of Egypt, as he pulls them out into Sinai, and as he calls Moses up onto the mountain, and he gives them these Ten Commandments. They're sort of setting the stage for everything else, all this other law that he is going to give them. And the law, while when you just pull it out of its context, and you read it, and you think, man, this is so difficult. It's so difficult to live this way, thinking about the different things, not understanding the context. You know, we think, well, who would want to live that way? But what this was what it was designed to do was to give life to God's people to give instruction on how to live on how to worship okay on who to worship and who not to worship on how to treat others and not just people you like to treat everybody okay it was instructions on how to do life that's what the the ten commandments are about Philip Camp says that uh, the key to understanding the commandments is that they are not abstract laws or universal principles dropped from heaven. They are deeply and intricately tied to the story of God and and Israel. And, you know, let me me just pause there because something that I have gained a a deeper respect for uh, recently in my life is the story of Israel. Because, you know, we think about Israel and we think of that Middle Eastern country over there and, okay, great, it's Israel. But, you know, we don't think much about them very much because, you know, we're, we're the West and it's so many thousands of years later and that was then and, and, and this is now. But the more you read and the more you understand Scripture, the more we should come to grasp that when we read about Israel and read about their story, we're really reading about our story, okay? Because Israel is God's people. Okay, if we are Christians, if we've given our lives to Jesus, we we have been grafted into Israel. We've been grafted into that story. And so it's important to look at these stories. It's important to understand the life of, of Israel. And like we said last week, our freedom is not so much about a, a location as it was for, for the Israelites. It's now about freedom from, from spiritual captivity. And so So this story is deeply tied to to God. It's deeply tied to Israel. Note that Exodus 20, verse 2, begins with an allusion to the Exodus from Egypt. In Jewish tradition, this is actually counted as the first of the Ten Commandments. Uh, No other gods and no idols are, are combined as the second commandment. These commands are part of the stipulation of Israel's covenant relationship with the God who saved them from Egypt. The commandments, with the rest of the law, then become the guide on how Israel is to live as a people of God, loving God and loving neighbor, and they become the basis upon which Israel is blessed or judged as the story of Israel continues. Well, Victor Hamilton and and Philip Camp that I just mentioned, they've done some great work on this subject and in these these Ten Commandments. I just wanted to share a, a few of their thoughts with you as we go through and as we we look at the each of the we look at each of these ten commandments. So we're just going to take them. We're just going to take them one at a time. We've already looked at the at the prologue. Now then, let me let me say something else. One other thing. Let me show you the reason why we have the ten commandments. You drop down all the way to uh, to verse twenty. And it says, and this is after he's delivered the ten commandments. Moses said to the people, "Do not be afraid, for God." has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. Okay? God is giving them this law. He's giving them these commandments so that they can live a better life, so that they can live in communion and in fellowship with him because what we're going to see over the next in the next two weeks, we're going to see the tabernacle be built. The tabernacle is God's dwelling where he came and he dwelt among the people. And that's what he desired for them. And so in order to live in this communion with God, they have to live how God wants them to live. So that brings us to commandment number one. And it's very simply, no other gods. Let's read this, uh, starting in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. This is one that, that we're familiar with. We are, on our our Wednesday nights in our our ABC groups, we are having varying degrees of, of discussion on this as we have two different classes going on. We have Tom's class that is Gods at War, and I'll say something a little bit more in just a second about that. And then we have my class that is going on that is looking at the religions of the world, and there are several of these that we've looked at that are sort of polytheistic. They have all sorts of gods, okay? And so our classes that are going on right now are are dealing with not just this first commandment, but they're dealing with with the second one as well. Because there are a lot of people out there that might claim to worship God, Jehovah God, the God that we worship, but yet they got other gods in their lives. And that's what Tom's class is is dealing with. From what we know, none of Israel's patriarchs and, and, and matriarchs were enticed to, to worship other gods. Okay, so this commandment, it isn't designed to deter Israel from, from worshiping the gods of its, of its ancestors. Every person from Adam to, to Joseph has kept the first commandment, so we wonder, okay, God, well, then what is this here for? Well, it's simply this. The, the gods of Egypt, we know they had no appeal to, to Israel. They were viewed as, as as incompetent; that they were they were sort of sterile. But what God is doing is He is giving a He's giving a warning. He's giving them a heads up for what is coming, because we know that when they get to Canaan, there's going to be some irresistible gods there. As we read about Asherah, as we read about the Baals, okay, and they're going to give themselves over to these other gods. And God is saying, "Look." When I pull you out of this land and you become my people, you are to have no other gods before me. The temptation for Israel and for us, it's not so much that we're, and that they were abandoning serving God in order to serve other gods. The temptation was for them to worship other gods in addition to the Lord. Does that make sense? And that is exactly what Tom's, class is striking at it's striking at the very heart of that because how many other things in our lives have priority over God okay our jobs our kids our whatever it might be our possessions our homes our money whatever our time we can allow those things to become gods in our life can we not do you agree we can allow those things to come become gods in our lives i don't think this one is so much about just abandoning god it's about worshiping god but also having other gods in our lives other priorities and it's so easy to fall into that trap isn't it it's so easy hey well you know i am got a lot going on i'll let some things slide okay i'll let some things slide i'll let my relationship with the lord slide i'll let my church attendance go just a little bit because i so much going on no you got another god in your life okay that's what that's about you have another god in your life god is saying you shall have no other gods lowercase g before me i am the lord your god capital g and i'm the only one i'm it okay so that's a reminder to us That maybe there are things in our life, not things, maybe there are other gods in our lives that we need to cut out, that we need to reprioritize, that we need to get our focus back where where it should be. He says, you are to have no other gods before me. Commandment 2 kind of goes along the lines with this. And this is one that, as we're going to see in two weeks, this is one that Israel is going to fail at miserably. I mean, just, I mean, shockingly bad. They're going to fail at this. But we do too. God commands that there should be no attempts to create any likenesses of him. Now then, does that mean that, you know, religious art is outlawed and, and, and banned and shouldn't happen? Well, no. Because as you continue reading the story, and especially as you get into. To, to chapters twenty five and on out through the rest of the book through, through chapter forty, and you start reading about the tabernacle and you start reading about all these tapestries and you start reading about the the priestly garments you realize man how beautiful and how ornate they were and there was a lot of artistry that went into this as a matter of fact, it talks about these artists about these these guys who who worked in construction and metal and they brought in, they were brought in to to shape this for lack of a better word, artwork that would become these garments and become the tabernacle of God. Okay? So we know that religious art that, that has a, a, a powerful symbolic significance was, was, was permitted because we see it there in the tabernacle, but images of God are specifically ruled out, and the question is why? I see two different reasons for maybe why that is. The first is is this. I mean, it's the, the idea that if you have access to an image of God, well, it's almost like it can be controlled. It's almost like it can be manipulated. Does that make sense? Does everybody have one of these gods? Everybody got one of these? You know? Okay. Uh, Randy Harris, I heard him say one time a, a cell phone is a... Uh, it's a wonderful servant, but it is a terrible master. Does that make sense? These can become gods, can they not? Okay? And let's just say this is a God. You know what I can do? I can move this God around. I can put it in my pocket. I can take it with me. Okay. I can I can control it. At the same time, I can let that God I can let that God control me. Okay, and the idea about this graven images thing, it's like if you have an image of God, you can sort of control it. You can maybe even manipulate it a little bit but what we have to keep in mind is that God is transcendent God is bigger than anything that we can possibly imagine he is bigger than our world he is wholly other than anything we can ever think up or imagine it's the song our God is greater okay that's the transcendence that's the bigness that's the the majesty and the magnitude of our God he cannot be contained in 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 something inanimate does that make sense the second reason is this look at the person to your right look at the person to your left okay the reason why god says don't make any images of him is because he's already done it the person sitting to your right the person sitting to your left is the image of god does that make sense There's no need to create an image of God because he's already done that. Genesis 1 tells us what? That God created mankind in his image and in his likeness. Okay? Don't try to improve on God's image because God's already done it. Every single one of us, we are the image bearers of God. Okay, so we can't create an image of God because he's already beat to the job and he's done a way better job than any of us ever could. Each person that you come in contact with is the image of God. You are, and, and keep this in mind, especially, especially if somebody's running you down, the world's just kind of running you over. You are, you are an image bearer of God Almighty. And that right there, that's what gives you your worth. It's not about how much money you have. It's not about your possessions. It's not about what you can do. It's not about your power or anything like that. What gives you your self-worth is that you, you were created in the image of God. Image of God. All right. Commandment. Before we move on to that, let me say one other thing about this. Because I think we have to apply this one a little bit, too. Today, you know, there are there a are few in our churches who are likely to go to a temple that worships Baal. Um, so it might, be, it might help to consider what led people to create these idols, or to consider what the, the motivations were. Uh, and it's when we, we do that, that can sort of help us see maybe uh, the root of our modern idolatries. Uh, in the form that they take, things that entice us like honor and, and glory, strength, beauty, wealth, fame, power, uh, things that we fear, chaos, danger, death, uh, things that we trust like experts, whoo, leaders in government. That one seems appropriate right now, does it not? Wow, we got a big week coming up, don't we? Keep in mind that these leaders that we have, that we are electing, they're just humans. Okay? And we are not to worship them. Okay? And don't flip out if your person doesn't get elected. Please. It's not going to be the end of the world. Okay? Jesus is probably not coming back because the wrong person got elected. Okay? Let me just let me just pause and, and say that. Okay? If your person loses. Do me a favor. Stay off Facebook. Or at least don't post on Facebook, okay, if it's really, really important to you, okay? Because, you know what? God, our God, Jehovah God, will still be on his throne on Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay? So just chill, okay? Okay? Just chill. It'll, it, it, it's, it's all going to be okay. I promise. It's all going to be okay. All right. Other things. Food, clothing, those kinds of things. God says no images, no other gods, because I've already created an image, and that is you, that is humankind. All right, commandment three. Uh, and this one is very simply. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Verse 7 says, You shall not make wrongful use of, of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. This was a struggle for people, because all the time I will hear people just flippantly say, my God, can you believe that happened? You ever heard anybody do that? Now, I know none of y'all have ever done that. I know you wouldn't do that. But you'll hear people say, Jesus Christ. You ever heard anybody do that? Somebody did that to me recently, and I went, yes, can I help you? And they said, what? And I said, well, you said Jesus. I said, I'm not him, but I work for him. So you know, can I help you with something? You know? I, and it's just one of those moments. It was an unguarded moment. It just sort of came tumbling out. But you hear it all the time. You hear people say, GD this and GD that. When it says, don't take the Lord's name in vain, the word vain there means to, to be empty. It means without substance, without significance. It means it's, it's worthless. Okay? Any invocation of God's presence, any calling on his name that is simply perfunctory is taking God's name in vain, okay? Using the divine name of God for or in something that lacks vitality, reality, and and substance. There's a guy by the name of Elton Trueblood. He says this. He says that the worst blasphemy is not profanity, but it's lip service. Does that make sense? man how many of us do that how many of us just give lip service to god have you ever thought about it? oh yeah i go to church church great love god love jesus but in a way we might be taking the lord's name in vain because on the outside yeah we love it but on the inside maybe we're not loving it we're not changed maybe we're not following god and so in that way we're using the name of god in vain. we're using god's mission and god's church in ways that it never meant to be used. the application here would invite us to consider the ways that that we use god's name to our own selfish ends. including in prayer and the way we use and the way we use god's name it, it, it trivializes it. what is our witness to the world about when we consider our God when we don't take the name seriously also we might consider that we wear the name of Christ and so our actions could also lead to taking the name of God in vain in other words if you're going to call yourself a Christian be one okay it's and, and I've said this and I've become more bold about this in the last year if you're going to live like a nut job You can do that, okay? If you want to live however you, I mean, you live however you want to live, okay? God will allow for that. Nobody can control you. But if you're going to live that way and you are a Christian, do one of two things. One, stop living that way and be a Christian. Or if you're going to live that way, stop telling people you're a Christian. Does that make sense? And I know that sounds really, really harsh. You know why? Because it is. Okay, but if we're going to call ourselves Christians, then we have to start living like Christians. I know that sounds crazy, right? But if we're going to be the people of God, we must live and act like the people of God. Okay, we can't take the Lord's name. It's more than just saying it flippantly. It's about the way we live our our lives. Well, this could turn into like a bunch of sermons. I've got to keep moving. All right, let's go to... Commandment 4, keep the Sabbath, Um, 8 through 10. It says, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a day of Sabbath to the Lord your God, and you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male, your female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your your towns. This is about laying aside the concerns of the, the previous six days and entering into what Herman Wolk calls a restorative magic. It's kind of like the reset button. In some ways, Sabbath feeds off these first few commandments. The proper observance of Sabbath guards against people idolizing their own work and their own agendas. And it's on Sabbath that no work was to to be done. You know, it's important for us, too, to take a day of rest, okay? We fill up our days of rest, do we not? With more work, with more stuff, and how often do we just say, I'm just going to rest? It's tough for us, isn't it? Okay, But I think that's part of the rhythm that's got to be built in life. When Jesus was going crazy with people coming after him and wanting to be with him, and there was all this ministry that needed to be done, oftentimes, you know what Jesus would do in in the heat of all that ministry? He would withdraw to a quiet place because he knew he had to rest. Okay, there are times when he pulled his apostles out of the crowd because there was a lot of work and there was a lot of stuff that needed to be done, but he knew they had to have rest if they were going to function, and so he'd pull them out, okay? Sabbath is a rhythm that needs to be built into our lives. We must have rest. Not only does this fourth commandment relate to the previous ones, it also serves as a bridge into the last six, those that deal with our relationships to others. Sabbath is a gift of God for everyone. It's a gift to children and slaves to the stranger and all those that might not be able to find rest. Commandment number 5. And this is about honoring parents, verse 12. Honor your father and mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God, that the Lord your God is giving you. You know, it might be easy for a, a reader of the Bible, you know, to expect it to say obey your your father and mother. You know, obey your father or mother because it's easier to obey rather than honor. Okay? Uh, One can hate but still obey. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I hate parents. But you do anyway what they said. Okay? It's easy or or it it is possible. It is possible to hate and and yet still obey, but you cannot both hate and honor. The word honor it reveals the seriousness of this command. It's, it's so serious that there's at least six times throughout the Bible when the word honor is used with God and God is the subject. Okay, So when it says honor your father and mother, there's six times in the Bible where that word honor is, is talking about, about God. It is very, very important to him. Honoring parents would include respect and obedience. It would mean caring for them in old age in in a way that that honors them you know that gets into some that gets into some ethical issues does it not you got a parent that's aging maybe dealing with alzheimer's and they're just deteriorating and no quality of life and you know they don't want to live that way but a lot of times we have a hard time letting go don't we it's not because we're being cruel it's because we love those people we don't want them to we don't want them to to leave our lives But maybe it's more honoring. If they've lived a life devoted to God, maybe it's more honoring to let them go and be with God. I mean, I'm not trying to tell you what to do on that. You have to pray through that and you have to consider it. But whatever we do, we have to make sure that even even as adults, I mean, we still have to honor our parents. Okay, that's not a command that comes to an end once you hit 18. Or once you move out or once you decide that you're an adult, that's a command that carries on. okay' I'm, I'm, I'm 40 years old and I still have to honor my parents okay so sorry for those of you that thought you were getting out of that one one day that, that one that one keeps going <laughs> you know you still have to keep you still have to keep doing it. We still have to honor them. Uh, also here's here's another thing another way you honor your parents is to live, lives live honorable lives okay your parents ever tell you hey listen what you do reflects on me there's a lot of truth to that is there not okay we have to live lives don't we point fingers we have to live lives honorable lives that reflect and honor the lives of our parents you know uh and that's that's not always that's not always easy not always easy to do All right, I'm gonna move ahead. Let's go to number. Let's go to number six. Do not kill. Verse thirteen. Uh, yours may say you shall not murder. It might say you shall not kill. Something along the lines of that. Uh, some scholars choose to translate that verb as murder. Uh, what they mean by that is uh, what is banned is not all forms of killing. You know, you know, uh, the death penalty or involvement in a in a war. But it's talking about the The unnecessary taking of life that comes out of anger and and greed. Jesus extended the the sixth command to include feelings of of anger and verbal abuse of another person or derogatory name-calling in in Matthew chapter 5 as he's laying out the Sermon on the Mount. It's funny as you read the Sermon on the Mount how you see these commandments sort of coming into what Jesus is saying. Commandment number 7. Uh... Don't commit adultery. And there's a lot we could say on this one. The 14, it says very simply, You shall not commit adultery. If the the previous command upheld the sanctity of life and the one before that, the sanctity of the home, this commandment holds up the sanctity of marriage. Marriage is not simply a relationship of convenience, nor is it to be tampered with. Infidelity carries with it the most serious of, of consequences. On one level, the commandment ensures bloodlines and, and property rights. More importantly, though, it protects the integrity of the community from destructive forces. In positive terms, consider how to encourage and strengthen marriages proactively. And too often, and, and too often, churches engage marriage only in crisis situations. A couple is contemplating divorce, or there's an affair. Uh, there's one spouse that has an addiction to, to pornography that threatens the, the marriage. And while you know, while that intervention is important, we need, and when I say we, I'm pointing a finger at us, we need churches that promote a, a healthy theology of marriage and family. You know, maybe if that were the case, we might not have to do so much crisis intervention in some situations. All right, commandment number eight. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Stealing, stealing fails to place full and complete trust in God as the provider. Again, it disrupts community. Contrast our society where theft is often ultimately meaningless because most of us, we can have or we can get back whatever was stolen through insurance and, and things like that, but their society was more day-to-day. It was sustenance, living. They depended on literally, give us, Lord, our daily bread, okay? This is especially prevalent among the, the poor. As, the, as developed in the law, it could not only include theft, but also it could include usury and extortion and default, defrauding. Philip Camp says, my sense is that, and this one hurts, He says, my sense is that Christians usually steal in less obvious ways. Not putting in a full day's work for a full day's pay. Because Facebook just takes up so much of our time. Illegal downloads, etc. He says, we can justify it to ourselves by claiming that corporations are rich or corrupt. But those are self-justifications and those are not biblical or Christian. He says, usually I think the real reason is that we don't want to spend the money. Thinking in positive terms, one might ask how can we help create a culture stealing is not a temptation because there is no need? Well, that speaks missionally, does it? Does it not? That we as a church need to be meeting needs wherever we can so that we can remove that that struggle because that's a struggle to people that don't have anything. Okay? To feed a family or whatever it might be, if we can provide those needs, we can take some of that, that, that choice out of that and we can help to provide and, and, and be the people of God. Commandment 9, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your, uh, against your neighbor. Here, uh, this word, it's uh, shakur, uh, it, it often carries the idea of deception or emptiness, of vanity. But it's more than just simply lying but it involves malice or harm to uh to a neighbor it also includes slandering others or publicly shaming them well that's got to be a big thing in our country has it not in our world to shame one publicly uh some people really like to aid shame i won't say who it is but some of us have been victims of that in here but there's other ways that you shame people this guy knows what i'm talking about you know, you see it all over social media. You know, what is it that says it's okay for me to just talk bad about people because I don't like the way you look, I don't like what you wear. You know, you might have some sort of flaw that, that I don't have, and so I can just shame you for. What is that about? In this age of social media, where it's just there's it goes unchecked, there's nobody to hold us accountable, and I mean, I'm all for, you know, freedom of speech. But man, some people just need to hold on to it. Keep it. You know, it's that whole thing. You know, if you can't say nothing nice, then don't post it on Facebook. You know, I mean, come on. But we live in this world that just says, I don't care. You know, we do this. We might all ought to consider instead how we can use words to encourage and, and build one another up. That's what Ephesians 4, 29 is talking about. Finally, commandment 10. Do not covet. Verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The word for coveting, it's also used in Genesis a couple of places for the fruit of the tree of knowledge. It's used in the book of Joshua. It talks about aching desire for the spoils of war that they weren't supposed to have. In Proverbs, it refers to lust for a woman. In Ezekiel, it refers to women's lust for men. It can also have a positive sense, though, as a desire for Yahweh's law, one who delights in her lover. Um, Problem with coveting, there's there's, there's two, two things. One, it seeks to gain illegitimately what one may not have legitimately this then leads to other sins and breakdown of breakdowns of community rather than rejoicing for the good of another you know we want what you got i'm not happy that you got that i want that i want to be happy so i want it i gotta have it i need that second it also reveals a lack of appreciation for what god has blessed what god has blessed us with so we work through this. We see that these, these commandments, they aim not only to, to guide our behavior, but our, our thoughts and our attitude as well. And I think this is what we see throughout the life and the ministry and the, the words and the, the teachings that we see in, in, in Jesus. So how is this a, a word for us? Well, when Jesus was asked about the greatest command. He quoted a variation of Deuteronomy 6.5 that says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your, whole, uh, with, all your, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You realize that as you look at that, that, that reply, that reduced the first four commandments down into one sentence. Okay? Now then Jesus wasn't asked for any further explanation, but he goes on there uh, in, in Matthew 22, and he says, And the second is like it, you shall love your who? Your neighbor. You should love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that statement, all the last six commandments are reduced down to that one statement. It's about loving God. It's about loving others. That's what we see in the Ten Commandments, is it not? Remember, it's about the vertical relationship between how we love and how we worship God. It's about the horizontal relationship about how we love and how we honor one another. Okay? Jesus captured the heart of the Ten Commandments in Those two phrases, the Ten Commandments, are about how we love God and about how we love others. The point for us today as we consider these commandments is simply this. The Ten Commandments are about how we love God and how we love others. And in the words of the great theologians Bill and Ted, be excellent to each other.